the the trends that we're seeing are very positive. Uh, and it is um, driven by uh, more and more renewable energy coming onto the grid. Welcome to the Baseload Podcast. My name is Ben Beattie. I'm an electrical engineer, and it's fair to say I'm incredibly sceptical of the claims that wind and solar will ever lower people's electricity bills. The opening clip was head of the Australian Energy Market Operator, AMO, Daniel Westerman, interviewed at the end of April 2023 on ABC Radio. In this episode, we'll cover that interview in detail, as well as look at recent announcements on nuclear power and the continuing demonization of gas. We'll wrap the episode with my interview with Katrina Thulin, who lives in the Ballarat Bendigo region of Victoria, and spoke to me about the development of wind farms and transmission lines in her environment. I'm recording this episode on the weekend of 13th May 2023, just two weeks after the New South Wales Liddell coal-fired power station exited the market forever. Being the shoulder months where the electricity supply is rarely stretched, hence you get planned shutdowns regularly in this period, all that's to say that Liddell closing in April has little effect on the supply-demand balance in New South Wales. However, Liddell's missing 1,000 megawatts, which is roughly what it's been sending out for the last year or so, will show up in summer. It's a relatively simple matter to show that on a hot summer day without Liddell, all the other remaining New South Wales coal-fired power stations, every single unit, has to be at 90% output to meet the demand. Before we get to the Westerman interview, here's Queensland National Senator Matt Canavan on Sky News sharing his thoughts on the Liddell closure. He's discussing the situation with Linda Scott, a Labor councillor from Sydney. It's just, as I say, it, it is so soul-crushingly sad that we live in a nation blessed with almost un, unmatchable energy resources, yet we are here a few months from winter uh, hoping and praying uh, that it doesn't get too cold and the lights stay on. Now, it is probably too late to keep Liddell coal-fired power station open, but I've been calling for months that we should be mothballing it. We should be at least keeping it in a state where it can be brought back online. What angers me the most uh, about people like Linda and others is their seemingly uh, unimpeachable infallibility in their claims. They came to see saying, oh, renewables are the answer, and there's no- anyone who suggests anything else is a complete moron, despite all of the evidence around the world. Maybe, just maybe, you might be wrong, and you should have an insurance policy to protect those jobs at the Meatworks, Linda. And so why don't you, for those workers, at least keep... Liddell, something like Liddell, in a state where it can be brought back online in case you're wrong. Because if you are wrong, then we'll have no answers. We can't just uh, click our fingers and build a uh, nuclear SMR overnight. We can't uh, bring on gas fields uh, uh, just the next day. Uh, and so why don't we have a backup plan here? Because it's clear that the renewables only plan is failing us and failing us repeatedly. And many, many jobs are on the line here because people are so pig-headed and won't face facts. Right, We've Linda, just you heard the last from the new energy minister saying that there are not reliability concerns. So we've just heard oh, the advice. God. How many times have we heard from the experts saying that? And they're and wrong. We've also They've been wrong time and time again. Tanya I heard the same things before in Hazelwood. In the last 24 hours about the doubling of the number of renewable energy approvals that she's provided as the new energy it's not minister. Matter. So Labor it's not is matter. creating all these jobs at the uh, well, federal the level though. and they're having to do well, that, Matt, because not, your Linda, colleagues it's, it, in well, the former Liberal read, National you State read, Government here you read, in New South Wales didn't fix the problem. If you read the Australian Energy Market Operator reports, it doesn't matter how much solar and wind you put in. We have a gap. We have a gap of 8,000 megawatts over the next decade. That's four large coal-fired power stations. This is not, you know, this is really, really serious. Uh, But people like yourself and others that should know better, you say you're on this energy panel, I don't know if you've read that report, but the, the solar and wind will not fix that gap because it's not reliable power. It's not dispatchable capacity. We need 8,000 megawatts of dispatchable capacity. Where is that going to come from? Uh, It's not going to come from solar and wind. 
Yeah, let's so let's get real here and start dealing with proper solutions rather than this complete... Get so angry with this bureaucratese uh, that, that, that papers over these issues. Meanwhile, people who work hard and are in factories and should have a future in this country are left by the wayside because you're playing politics. Matt Canavan with his tail up, leaving little doubt as to his thoughts on the, on the matter. Now on to Daniel Westerman. Australia's energy transition has long promised both lower power bills and lower carbon emissions. <laughs> okay, the goat's back in this episode. Uh, Ms Carvella said that the transition has promised lower bills and lower emissions. Well, I'd suggest that the bureaucrats, the lobbyists and the politicians have promised those things. The transition is uh, an empty vessel. The latest quarterly report from the Australian Energy Market Operator shows that promise is becoming reality. Gosh, we haven't even got to the interview yet. We're still on Patricia Carvelis's intro when we've got two goat bleats already. In the first quarter of this year, record levels of renewables drove carbon emissions from the sector to new lows. Okay, I'll give her the emissions. I'll read from the AMO's quarterly energy dynamics report for Q1 2023, chapter 1.3.5, M emissions. NEM total emissions and emissions intensity both declined in Q1 2023 in Q1 2023 to their lowest Q1 levels on record. Emissions intensity excludes generation from distributed PV, taking into consideration sent-out generation only from market-generating units. Q1 2023 total emissions at 28.83 megatons declined 5.1% from Q1 2022, while emissions intensity dropped 4% from Q1 2022. The steeper decline in total emissions shows that emissions and emission intensity reduction is a result of both falling operational demand and a reduction in the output share of thermal generating units. Okay, fair enough. Less emissions from the Australian, the national electricity market, the East Coast of Australia, electricity generating system because of lower demand and more renewables. Sure, let's continue and contributed to a slide in wholesale energy prices. Contributing is the problem here. Uh, Ms Carvelis could mention the other factors contributing to lower wholesale prices, which are lower gas prices, lower electricity demand overall. But, you know... They choose not to. Daniel Westerman is the Chief Executive of AEMO and our guest this morning. Daniel, welcome back. Good morning, Patricia. So spot market prices for wholesale energy fell about 10% in the first three months of this year. They're down more than 50% from the record high last June. When will that translate to lower power bills? Listeners may recall that this question was asked of Claire Savage, the Chair of the Australian Energy Regulator, recently also. Well, as you said, Patricia, what this latest report really does show is that the energy transition is very much underway in Australia. Um, we're seeing more and more renewable energy come online, uh, and that is pushing down prices, particularly during the day. Wholesale prices are not retail prices. Uh, it's also changing how we manage the grid. Um, we've got lower prices um, and lower emissions. <laughs> Answer the question, please. Uh, now, to answer your question, it, it, it does take some time for wholesale power prices to flow through into retail bills. I'm sensing a note of caution in Mr Westerman's tone. But the, the trends that we're seeing are very positive. <laughs> to be brutally honest about it, the only positive trend is higher retail prices, as explained by the chair of the Australian Energy Regulator, Claire Savage, also on ABC Radio. The head of the Australian Energy Regulator, Claire Savage, is in the studio with me. Claire, welcome. 
Morning, Patricia. First of all, how much of a hike are we talking about and when is it going to hit? So what we're releasing today is our draft decision. So the final decision won't be available until May. At this time, we're estimating that household prices could rise between 20 and 22%, depending on where you live. And why would that be, Mr Westerman? Uh, And it is um, driven by uh, more and more renewable energy coming onto the grid. Notice that these bureaucrats never explain how retail prices, our electricity bills, are meant to go down as a result of the the massive amount of spending on renewables on the grid and uh, investment in the grid itself with new transmission lines, synchronous condensers, batteries, uh, anything else you care to mention that has to be spent on the grid has to come out of our bills. So it's very difficult to see how any bills can ever go down. Okay, so it's obviously a positive story, but I, I, I have to drill on this sometime until wholesale, wholesale energy uh, lowering prices leads to retail bills being lower. What is that sometime time frame? Just ask how, Patricia. Ask him how. Well, the energy regulator sets the cap for um, for retail prices on an annual basis. So you'd have to ask the regulator about uh, the process there. They're releasing their default market offer pretty soon. At this time, we're estimating that household prices could rise between 20 and 22%, depending on where you live. But what we're seeing here is that more low-cost renewable energy is coming onto the grid. And it's pushing down um, those wholesale prices, which do form a significant part of retail bills, uh, particularly during the day. In fact, your listeners might be interested to know that uh, for the quarter, around 12% of the time, wholesale prices were either uh, zero or negative. And that's typically during the day uh, when the sun is shining very strongly on the three and a half million uh, rooftop solar systems that uh, many of your listeners will have. I'll point out to Mr Westerman that anyone with solar panels on their roof hasn't paid a full retail bill ever since they got the solar panels. So for these people who have solar panels, the generation cost is largely irrelevant. However, the fixed costs on their bills keep going up every year. And why would that be? How could it possibly be? We keep getting told that renewables are the cheapest thing around. Westerman continues. So for people listening to this who aren't experts in the energy market, and that would be a lot of people, can you explain that process of lower power prices flowing through to bills and why it takes so long, the lag? Well, you'd have to ask the regulator about the process for um, uh, for retail bills. Um, what we're looking at here is the wholesale price, and the retail price sets up, it comprises the wholesale price and some network costs. <laughs> Oh, we're nearly there. The, what we see in the wholesale price now um, is a significant drop from uh, the highs of last year. And as you said at the start, we're very much down to um, essentially the prices that we had before the crisis of last year. And as it's taken some time for those um, prices to flow through and to increase electricity bills, it will also take a little bit of time for it to flow through into lower bills. Okay. The Australian Energy Regulator is forecasting a 20 to 22% increase in energy bills later this year. Does that reflect the cost of transmission projects rather than the cost of wholesale energy? Oh, that's a real question. I wonder what the answer could be. Well, what we're seeing during the day... <laughs> nope. 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 Um, is a significant um, uh, production of solar electricity um, as the sun shines down on those um, rooftop solar systems. 
Still not an answer. Transmission really is needed to make sure that um, these new low-cost sources of electricity are able to be connected to our towns and our cities. What we see in this report, actually, is that... Not an answer. Uh, when the sun was shining during the day in Victoria, um, creating those zero and negative prices, the interconnector into New South Wales was actually maxed out uh, more often than it's not. So while Victoria had these uh, even slightly lower average electricity prices, um, New South Wales and Victoria, sorry, New South Wales and Queensland um, had, had slightly higher prices. Mm. And so mm. it's a second interconnector, so new transmission, uh, would actually mean that we can share these low-cost and low-carbon electrons um, and benefit all consumers. A piece by the Australian Energy Council's Peter Brooks, dated 23rd of March 2023, discusses the VNI interconnector. And I'll quote from the article. It has been acknowledged both by the Australian Energy Regulator and the Australian Energy Market Operator that VNI is being regularly constrained during the day when certain solar farms are generating. The article goes on with several pieces of analysis, uh, which is actually, to be honest, a bit too complicated to read out on a podcast. I'd recommend you uh, you seek this article out and read it for yourselves if you're interested. Uh, but the conclusion, the conclusion is uh, interesting. It says, while this analysis is relatively simplistic, it does illustrate the magnitude of the costs to the market caused by northward flows on VNI being limited. Furthermore, it illustrates the perverse outcomes that can be created in the national electricity market's open access and state-based pricing regime, i.e. the locations of a handful of solar farms can significantly and regularly impair the operation of a major interconnector that customers pay for. So I put it to Mr Westerman that a, a reasonable justification for a new transmission line is lowering the costs for consumers. Solving a problem that you've caused in the first place is not a reasonable justification for spending billions of dollars on a transmission line. That's that's really interesting. So there are still kind of roadblocks in the system in terms of being able to make that a national story, right? I'll say. That's right. So, I mean, Australia's energy transition is, is playing out very rapidly. Uh, we're building new low-cost, low-carbon electricity sources where the sun shines and the wind blows. We need the transmission to be able to connect those new sources of electricity into our towns and cities. Rubbish. The supply already exists. Overall, that new energy system with renewable energy, with firming capacity like batteries and gas and pumped hydro, and that transmission to connect those new sources of electricity to towns and cities is not only lower cost... Prices could rise between 20 and 22%. It leaves us more resilient um, against the international commodity shocks and price shocks that we saw impact the system last year. <laughs> I was wondering when the squeaky one was going to come in. Ah, oh, resilience. Where would, uh, where would Australia be without resilience? How can we be more resilient? If only we had our own reserves of coal and gas and uranium and oil. If only. Overall gas demand in eastern Australia fell 9% in the first three months of the year. Is that because renewables are meeting that need? Well, gas demand was slightly lower for a couple of reasons, including less exports. And what that's actually enabled um, us to do is to push more gas into storage for this winter. And in fact, we have more gas in storage this winter than any previous uh, winter, which is a really good thing. 
followers of the Australian energy market operator will recall that AMO has been given powers to buy gas sometime last year. Uh, I presume AMO buys gas off the market, thereby becoming uh, an extra demand on the market, and they stick it into storage. Uh, and what do they do with it? Do they sell it at a loss? I'd love to know. The rest of the interview is uh, you know, less interesting than the first part which was only mildly interesting to start with. My apologies. Next generation small modular nuclear technologies are safe, reliable, cost-effective, can be plugged into existing grids where we've turned off coal and emit zero emissions. In the 21st century, any sensible government must at least consider small modular nuclear as part of the energy mix. Federal opposition leader Peter Dutton finally for the LNP coming to terms with nuclear power and endorsing it. Very interesting uh, scenario. Let's see what Minister Bowen responded with on social media. I've heard some politicians recently talking about nuclear power as the answer to Australia's energy needs. In fact, these are the same people who had nine years running Australia's energy system and never got around to introducing nuclear energy because it's a very bad idea. There's really three reasons. Nuclear power is very expensive. Wherever nuclear power plants are being built around the world, they are taking longer and costing much more than budgeted for. Even small modular reactors would cost a massive $5 billion each to build. And proponents say we need as many as 80 small reactors spread across the country. That's a whopping $400 billion in cost. And the experts at the CSIRO have done the work. They show renewable energy is the cheapest form of energy and nuclear is by far the most expensive. Nuclear power stations being built today are facing huge delays in their construction. Even if we started today, the first small reactor wouldn't be in operation to meet the urgent need to deliver dispatchable power now. We don't have a nuclear power industry, a regulatory or safety framework, nuclear power expertise or a nuclear power workforce. Building these capabilities would likely take decades, far longer than we have to get the new power generation into the grid. We've struggled here in Australia to store the nuclear fuel rods from our one small medical reactor. If the Liberals want lots of nuclear power plants across Australia, they would need to explain where they're going to store the nuclear waste. If Mr Dutton and the Liberals want to be taken seriously on their nuclear energy plan, they need to come clean on a few key things. Where will these nuclear power plants go? What will they do with the radioactive waste they generate? And when will they be operational and how on earth are we going to pay for them? Peter Dutton continued. 32 countries, including Canada, China, France, the United States and the United Kingdom, use zero-emission nuclear power today, including to firm up renewables. 50 countries are exploring or investing in next-generation nuclear technology. And oddly, Labor is happy for similar technologies to power our future submarines. So it's not just countries that are investing in nuclear. Uh, Your Japan, your Koreas, your America... Canada, uh, various European countries, and then uh, the UK as well. You also have large companies interested in making sure they have a solid baseload power supply and the other benefits of thermal generation, which is process steam. Here's Jim Fiddling, CEO of Dow Chemical, explaining why Dow is going to be using nuclear SMRs to power their operations. Well, this is a a whole new nuclear uh, application that's coming out. Uh, These advanced small modular reactors will be the future of safe, reliable baseload power. 
One of the challenges that you can see happening in the country right now from California, even Texas, up and down the East Coast is we're starting to have times of day where you're starting to have power outages, and that's because we've taken out baseload power and replaced it primarily with wind and solar. We're big advocates of wind and solar, and we use a lot of wind and solar, but we need 24-7 reliable power. It needs, power needs to be sustainable, reliable, and affordable, and that's where we think new nuclear fits. Uh, this is an inherently safer technology than what you're used to seeing in the utility sector, nuclear is based on light water reactors, and you're thinking about large one-gigawatt units. Exactly. One module of the X-Energy XE100 is an 80-megawatt module that generates uh, enough power and steam for us. We'll put four of those small modules together at the site, and we'll take the site to zero carbon emissions from power and steam. So it'll eliminate 440,000 tons of carbon and steam emissions just by that one application. And we think on top of hydrogen and carbon capture, which will also be critical, uh, small modular nuclear will be the future for industry and probably for utilities. That's interesting, Jim. You know, your point about the grid demand is a good one. And I wondered if you think concerns about that are going to get more acute because of, I don't know, EV adoption? Or is the market efficient enough to get that supply out in front of that kind of curve? Yeah, I think um, two things have to happen. One, we have to realize that clean natural gas has been one of the things that got us to this point. And it's a simple calculation on the grid. If you take 1,000 megawatts of coal-fired power off the grid, you can't just replace it with 1,000 megawatts of wind and solar. That 1,000 megawatts of wind and solar delivers about 240 megawatts reliably to the grid. That 1,000 megawatts of coal delivers 900 megawatts reliably to the grid. So if you were to replace that coal with advanced nuclear, much more reliable supply to the grid, or natural gas, much more reliable supply. And I think we have to realize that from an economic standpoint, People at home are not going to want to live through days where they have hours of power outages. Uh, people in industry are not going to move their factories back to a country that can't provide them 24-7 reliable power. So we think, we think nuclear is part of that future mm -hmm. equation. We think hydrogen and carbon capture are a big part as well. The CEO of a major company like Dow putting his shareholders' money where his mouth is is a, is a far cry from ideologically throwing taxpayer money at uh, uneconomical projects, which is pretty much what we call, what I call the transition. Here's another opinion from George Bilicic, head of Lazard's LCOE report. This clip comes from the COB Tuesday podcast. Do you have a sense of, as people are focused more and more on reliability, and every grid's going to be different, but is there, is there a prevailing percent of renewables you probably don't want to be over? Do you find, is that something you bump into? Because I, I we're informally starting to feel that. I don't think there's a bright line test because, or, or line, there's not a bright line because there's so many different kinds of renewables and it's going to depend on where you are and what the renewable resource is. Um, but one thing for sure is you can't have 24 by 7 renewables. You can't have 100% renewables. Tough to argue with that. What else has Mr. Bowen had to say about 
energy and emissions and prices lately? We know on this side that reducing emissions and reducing bills are the same thing. Yeah, anybody exposed to the safeguard mechanism would beg to differ. Anybody who's had a recent electricity price rise would beg to differ. Anybody who's facing future electricity price rises would beg to differ. Anybody who's facing a gas price rise would beg to differ. That makes pretty much everybody. We understand that. They don't get it. Every time they interject, they show they don't get it. The Australian people sent them a memo last May, but the memo was returned to sender. They just, they just still don't understand. You're right, Mr Bowen. What don't the people opposite you understand? That actually helping Australian households the become more energy member efficient... The Fairfax, if he interjects once more, will leave the chamber. The minister will continue. There'll be no loss, Mr Speaker, but they, they show... The member for Fairfax is, of course, the LNP's Ted O'Brien, who for the last couple of years has been heavily involved in understanding and advocating for nuclear power in Australia. He's probably one of the only Australian politicians who's been to a nuclear power station uh, and talked to different governments and experts around the world. He also headed the federal inquiry into nuclear power as recently as 2019. They show the Australian people that they don't understand that making households more efficient, more energy efficient, and improving energy performance is good for emissions and bills. We'll wrap up this segment with Ted O'Brien's six-minute rebuttal to Minister Bowen's social media video. So here's the question. Why did Labor's climate change and energy minister, Chris Bowen, post a video about nuclear energy on Friday morning and then swiftly remove it from all his social media platforms within hours? The answer, it was untruthful, a misrepresentation of the facts, and it diminished Australia. Let's take a look. Here's why Chris Bowen thinks next generation zero emissions nuclear energy is a bad idea. There's really three reasons. His first reason. Nuclear power is very expensive. Nuclear, expensive? Not for consumers it isn't. Unlike Chris Bowen's theoretical models, actual data from electricity grids around the world tell a very different story. I was in Ontario, Canada in February, and the minister showed me how nuclear energy brings the price of electricity down. I was presented with similar evidence when I visited Japan. And it's the same again for South Korea. To these countries, it's not theory. They have all the same energy sources as we do in Australia, plus nuclear. And what they conclude is when nuclear is in the mix, electricity costs and therefore prices to consumers go down. It helps explain why 32 nations today have nuclear energy and they want more. And there's another 50 countries across the world who are looking at introducing nuclear energy for the very first time. Meanwhile, here in Australia, our electricity prices are soaring and yet the minister responsible is lecturing the rest of the world about the economics of their electricity grids. Chris Bowen's second reason. Nuclear power stations being built today are facing huge delays. But he didn't mention this year's host of COP28, the UAE, did he? In the UAE, they have added three new reactors in the last three years to their grid. A fourth one's on the way. 12 years ago, the UAE had zero nuclear energy in their mix. 
Next year, they'll have up to 25%. You can always find selected examples of delays on any infrastructure project. But before criticising projects in other countries, Chris Bowen might like to remember that under his watch, the Snowy 2.0 Hydro project has been delayed, won't be up and running until the end of this decade. The Curry Curry gas plant has been delayed by another 12 months. And then we have his plan for over 22,000 solar panels installed every single day, 40 wind turbines every single month, and then up to 28,000 kilometres of transmission lines carpeting regional Australia. Let's see how he goes on his delivery timeline for those. Chris Bowen's third reason, waste. We've struggled here in Australia to store the nuclear fuel rods from our one small medical reactor. To his credit, he acknowledges Australia already is a nuclear nation with a nuclear reactor already operating 30 kilometres outside of Sydney CBD. On waste, nuclear nations have already solved for this. Whether it be on site, at plants, central repositories, above ground, below ground, I have personally gone and inspected these different options. I can assure you Chris Bowen hasn't. All the nuclear waste ever produced from commercial nuclear power plants could fit onto one cricket field, about seven metres high. Chris Bowen doesn't tell you that. Such is the density of the fuel. Besides, waste is only waste if you don't use it. Next generation nuclear technologies include designs for feeder reactors, which use the waste to produce energy. But none of this is going to stop Chris Bowen from running his scare campaign. What astounds me most is Chris Bowen forgets that under the AUKUS arrangement, Prime Minister Albanese has agreed for Australia to manage the spent fuel and waste that will come from our future fleet of nuclear propelled submarines. To be clear, I have every confidence in Australia doing this, every confidence, but Chris Bowen clearly does not. Not only is he a minister in the government, but he sits on Cabinet's National Security Committee. What sort of message is he sending to our AUKUS partners? Chris Bowen's video was a cheap political attack. And the Australian people deserve better. They deserve an honest, mature conversation about the challenges, the opportunities of Australia's energy future. The minister might speak for the Australian Labor Party, but he does not speak for the Liberal National Coalition. When it comes to Australia's future energy mix, the coalition believes in an all-the-above approach where every possible technology is considered. It's on the table. We don't want to see technologies pitted against each other. It's about working out how technologies can complement each other as part of a broader energy mix. A mix that can keep prices down, keep the lights on, and make sure that we have energy security in this country. As for next generation, zero emissions nuclear energy, We'll continue assessing this technology and be open with the Australian people as we do. Industry in Australia, the gas industry, face an assault across multiple fronts from the government. 
So late last year, we saw the government coming with very heavy handed gas price fixing policy, which is just focused on the east coast of Australia, where they're essentially forcing gas to be capped at about $12 a gigajoule. Um, that's Australian dollars a gigajoule and forcing uh, LNG exporters to divert gas domestically into that lower price to satisfy domestic demand. And they're looking to actually right now, from next year onwards, extend a policy like this to have all future pricing regulated. So that's a very kind of socialist um, uh, knee-jerk reaction from the government in the face of high domestic prices and the cost of living issue. Saul Kavanick, analyst with Credit Suisse Australia, courtesy of the COB Tuesday podcast. We've also got underway now a tax review. So Australia has a super profits tax called the Petroleum Resource Rent Tax. They're looking to amend that and make that tighter and tougher as well. And the paradox, of course, is most of the Australian LNG projects have actually been terrible investments. Most of them are not going to make very good returns. And yet the government's looking to ramp up a tax, which is only supposed to be for super profits, on projects which have actually, over on average, made losses. The reason these huge projects are still showing losses and not paying much income tax. Well, some of them are paying a lot of income tax, but if you spend for one company to spend $20 billion building a LNG facility and the upstream gas infrastructure, it takes a while to recoup that $20 billion. Uh, And up until you recoup it, you're basically claiming a tax deduction. And then thirdly, we are looking at changes on the environmental approvals front. So we've seen now a project which has got its approvals was halfway being built off the north coast of Australia called Barossa. And there's been a court case that they didn't consult with the indigenous communities and that's been stopped and the rig's just sitting there and they're not allowed to drill. And this could be stymied for six to 18, perhaps longer months. And we've got changes to our Environmental Biodiversity Act, which is going to make this tough. And at every step of the way, the Greens are making sure they have more hooks and more levers and more points that they can stop projects. The Greens and the environmental activists, partly including the, uh, the, the current federal government and state governments, are also uh, extending these hooks into other areas of the resource sector, for example, coal mining. The Guardian Australia had to make a correction on an article on the 12th of May, uh, which incorrectly said that the Isaac River coal mine was negatively affecting a koala and glider habitat. They just made it up. In the same speech that Peter Dutton endorsed nuclear power as a as a policy for the LNP, he also had a bit to say about the uh, the situation with the Greens and the environmentalists and and you know the federal government of Australia attacking the resources industry as well. With the government against coal and nuclear, gas remains the only viable firming power today, and yet Labor wants gas gone too. It's undermining gas at every turn, and that's why your gas prices continue to go up. Their interventions in the market with price fixing by funding activists to wage lawfare against new gas supply ventures in introducing a new carbon tax three times more than Julia Gillard's in pushing to electrify homes and businesses despite the exorbitant costs for families and by increasing taxes on offshore gas and oil projects in this budget. Your household is paying for all of this, paying for all of it and so much more to come. A coalition will get more gas into the domestic system because we know that that will work. More supply into the system where there is demand will reduce prices. Labor is choking the supply of gas, which is driving the prices up. Some cold logic there from Peter Dutton. 
back to Saul Kavonik. And so that's what we're seeing in Australia across all these fronts. And if you listen to the government, so if you Google, you know, Australia's Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, and what his comments have been about gas, it's all very positive. He talks about the critical need for firming renewables, transition fuel, the reliable trade partner status of Australia. But Maynard, the issue is actions speak louder than words. And every action the government's taken since it's come into office has hurt the gas industry. And it's got to the point now where the gas industry sees the government as being inherently hostile. And that is a very difficult place because we've still got more challenges ahead, ahead of the next election. And there's, I'm afraid, likely to be more interventions to come, both because it's politically expedient and the Greens are demanding it. Green Senator from South Australia, Sarah Hanson-Young, unashamedly retweeted the incorrect information from the Guardian article. And I quote, In the same week the Albanese government gave next to nothing in the budget for the environment, Minister Plibersek has tonight signalled her intent to approve a new coal mine, the Isaac River coal mine, a new coal mine in koala habitat. Bad move, wrong way, Minister, go back. Ms. Hanson-Young clearly hasn't seen the correction. I wonder if she cares. But also because the initial interventions the government has made have been thought through so poorly, they're going to have to make additional interventions to fix the original interventions' unintended consequences. I think what Saul's getting at there is future gas shortages. So we're turning off Liddell coal-fired power station. In the shoulder months, it doesn't matter too much for supply-demand. But we do see the price of wholesale electricity uh, very highly correlated with the gas price. So gas shortages or even uh, just a, a high demand on gas means there's less of it to go around. So your power stations are competing for it. That's going to push the price up. The only solution would be, and the best solution, is more gas exploration and more gas development. Uh, If you can't export it, then you sell it locally. If you have a surplus locally, you'll have lower prices. And that's good for everybody. What Saw Kavonik is getting at is that the government policies to date are creating scarcity. Well, that's their plan. Katrina Thurlin, welcome to the Baseline Podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks very much for coming on. So before we get into the uh, nitty gritty of uh, your region and the uh, the transmission line projects and all the fun stuff going on with renewables in Victoria, can you just give us a, just a brief overview of who you are and what you're about? Uh, okay, so I am... Um, um... Born, grew up in Victoria, used to live um, uh, out a suburb of um, Melbourne, moved up here close to 20 years ago, and probably changed my views on uh, a lot of things. But anyhow, came up here because we wanted to have a little farm, and that's what we did, uh, free-range chickens and um, big dogs to guard them. And um, and now I um, I... I'm not in paid employment. I uh, volunteer at the local resource centre where I help um, locals get the best deal on everything they can or just advocate for them if if they need it um, because there's lots of people who are not very digital and the whole world is set up to be a digital world. Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, and thanks for that. And I encountered you in the in the digital world on Twitter where I... Uh, I came across you strongly, uh, not not so much opposed to renewables as a concept, but definitely a, um, critical of a lot of the development that goes along with renewables that isn't much talked about. Um, what 
what draw you, what drew your attention to uh, to this topic? I, look, the interesting thing is, um, I live um, on the uh, Sunraiser Highway, so driving down to Melbourne, I drive past Warborough, and I used to drive past Warborough, going, "Oh, aren't they beautiful and elegant and all that sort of stuff?" But you can't see any power lines from the Warborough um, wind farm. Then, um, because we had chickens and dogs and I deal with people selling both, um, people would say to me, they come from someplace with lots of wind farms, I go, yeah, yeah, the first one was um, um, oh, a bit exciting and a bit unique, and now it's awful. There's Portland surrounded, Ararat surrounded. Um, a youngest son um, needed to have a couple of driving lessons before getting his driver's licence and had to go to Ararat, and I ducked at this huge shadow that came across my car and it was the shadow from a, a, a wind turbine blade. Ararat is surrounded. Um, then, do you remember Crispy Dog? I've, I'm not familiar with the term Crispy Dog. <laughs> okay, Crispy Dog was on Twitter. Crispy Dog was the one who said to me, how can you like the bird choppers? Okay. And I'm like, I didn't know. So I go off and do some research. And in Victoria, um, wind turbines are allowed, wind farms are allowed to kill one predator bird per turbine per, ad, per annum. But in actual fact, no, they're allowed to kill 1.4. In actual fact, they kill 2.4 predator birds per turbine per annum. And nothing happens. I was, I was going to say it's interesting the uh, the topic of the the bird killing by the the wind turbines. Um, a lot of people who try and disseminate the uh, spread the information around without without getting to the real truth of it, like to say that, well, you know, cats kill birds and uh, pigeons fly into buildings and all the rest of it. But the difference is that when you're killing hawks and eagles, uh, you're killing the the top predator birds the top of the feed chain and that has a much greater impact than anything else the peregrine falcons on um uh, collins street everyone was devastated when one of them took his first flight and died but this is happening all over the place without a you know a camera on them um just up the road from me is um Kunura bridge wind farm very small and um a guy came on our local buy buy swap and sell and said what do I do with this broken eagle? And we're like, take it to a vet. He goes, I can't catch it, can't fly, but it runs really fast. Anyhow, we got the rescue to come in and take it away, but it was it, it, its wing was smashed. That was real life, real close. And if they're not endangered now, if you kill 2.4 predator birds per turbine per annum, eventually they will be endangered. Yeah, well, Sunny, they're they're a finite resource themselves, aren't they? The uh, the animals. Yes, and there's a, a man I can't think of his name also on Twitter who every day shares about the Brolgers um, nesting area where they built a wind farm, and he, he just he just wants them to stop. But no one seems to care if they don't get to see the dead birds, the damaged birds, they don't care. And then we get to the power lines. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is this is where I want to get get into the uh, the nuts and bolts of it. So I just want to, for the viewers, I just want to set the scene with the uh, with the uh, with the region. So you mentioned Ararat. 
So that's a that's a that's a few hours drive, sort of west, slightly north of Melbourne through Ballarat. Um, yeah. So you've mentioned Ballarat, you've mentioned Ararat, and we're talking about Horsham. So this whole yeah. that whole region west of Melbourne and and slightly north uh, is supposed to be transmission routes, and it's supposed to be full of wind turbines and solar farms eventually. I live in um, Renewable Energy Zone V3, which is central west of Melbourne. And we have we already have wind farms down Warburg and Ararat and that sort of stuff. But the AEMO plan has two and a half times as many wind farms as currently exist in my renewable energy zone. And the plan is to place them each side of the Western Renewables Link, which comes from is that is that VNI VNI West or West? Oh, you know, Western Renewables Link is a different one, isn't it? The West Western Renewables Link originally was going to go to just Warbra and then north um, to Ballarat and then to Kerrang. That was the original Western. Sorry, that was the original VNI West. <clears throat> when they went to the where the substation was going to be north of Ballarat, um, it had flooded last winter, so they. AMO decided they would move it to Warbra. Well, something 12 times the size of the MCG in Warbra obviously didn't go down well, so they decided to move that substation to Bolgana, which is slightly south and east of um, Stahl. Of course, what that meant was BNI West had to run from Bolgana to Kerrang or Echuca, depending on which map you look at. That changed everything, and hence the um, the meetings, the tractors, um, the uh, <clears throat> sorry, the farmers up here didn't support the farmers, the potato farmers near Ballarat, impacted by Western Renewables Link because it didn't impact on them. And I was concerned they'd just go, oh well, you know, it has to happen. Um, but now there's letters to local newspapers saying we're really sorry that we did not support other farmers because they they I guess they didn't realize at the time the extent of the of the plans and what that what that involves the, the renewables transition means uh, wind farms almost literally everywhere and there's probably even a couple of farmers who um, <clears throat> who would like to have them to host them um, but the vast majority would not um, mainly because of people coming in and out and lots of new access roads and all that sort of stuff. That's one of my questions I wanted to ask about is what's the, what proportion of people are in favour and what proportion of people are not in favour in your experience in these areas? I'd lump in both the transmission and the wind farms in that. If you go to the meetings, you would say no one is in favour. I didn't go to the first one because, as I said to someone today, the ad specifically said it was for stakeholders only. Now, I am not directly impacted, not in town and not our little farm um, further east of town. Um, so I didn't go. But evidently, um, that wasn't true. That was just um, their story to limit negative comment, I guess. Um, the and there's there's a lot made of the um, people. If I relate the sort of the local, um, not in my backyard activism to the Greens in Melbourne complaining about a, a coal mine in in Queensland, uh, this is a lot closer to your backyard. 
not only, I suppose, you're if you're living close to a uh, an infrastructure route which is already there, then you know about it. But if you're if you're living in a quiet neighbourhood and all of a sudden you're going to have a wind farm on in your backyard uh, and a transmission line over the hills, that's that's what people are most concerned about. Or is it is it is it a case of now they're starting to realise that the um, the environment is going to suffer as well? The um the the moving of VNI West and and particularly um, north and west of, of St Arnold is about avoiding um, the state forest because they know they won't win cutting through a state forest. Um, but it's a, the farmers are going. This is um, this is going to have a huge impact on on um, their biosecurity. You can't enter a farm out here. Um, without going through some sort of change of boots and dip in water and all that, sort of, not water, whatever, to cleanse your feet. Yeah, um, yeah you want to get the weeds out and the pests off, that's for sure. The most impressive thing about the, the second meeting, the one with the tractors and the trucks, was that these were young blokes who went to school with our youngest uh, who organised all of the young people and parents and stuff too, but generational farmers to come in and, and block the street could not wipe the smile off my face. I was so proud of them. It, it was just really impressive. And they got up and they made speeches about about their farms, about the impact on them. And of course, AMO wasn't at that one. Where these this uh, there's been it sounds like there's been a couple of well attended uh, meetings, which have been reasonably well organised by the the locals. Um, are they able to get? any local government or state government or federal government representatives along to these to to hear their concerns we had um we ha- i'm in northern grampianshire our mayor was at the uh Sedanid one and i think when he's called to speak he had no idea what he was supposed to say um but after that meeting um the mayor of the bullock shire that's just north of us um sent a long um letter and statement to the press saying that um absolutely support their farmers in not wanting it um, and that Northern Grampian Shire supports um, them as well. Because I'd, I'd imagine I'd imagine uh, some local, uh, how do I say it, the, if there's enough people locally and uh, a lot of farmers carry a lot of weight in the community as well, then the, the local mayors uh, and regional representatives of government would be sitting up and paying attention because that could directly affect their neck their election prospects right well not the um the local um state labor lady just elected last election um and look i know her name is martha halet um she can't actually stand up for us because labor people aren't allowed to not follow the party line so she hasn't attended anything at all and and I don't, I don't blame her, um, but it may count against her. So the only people who've turned up have been um, Libs and Nats. And in the most recent Victorian state election, I'll just point out that Nats won back three seats from independence in Victoria. In these, in these, in camp campaigning on uh, local issues. Yes, yes, because the only people who end up supporting us are the Nats, and it's. Like, I moved here uh, maybe 20 years ago, close to 20 years ago, didn't vote for the Nats, um, read the background of Anne Webster. I liked her background. She seems a nice lady, so I did vote for her. But 
people who move up here, they take about five years and then understand that Labor, Liberal, Greens, they don't care beyond the end of the Metro rail line. They don't have to see and they don't care what impacts on us. And I, I won't be surprised if the Nets end up the major coalition partner because they're the only spe people speaking up for us. And this, this push that they're supporting miners and that, if they supported miners, they'd be supporting renewables that will multiply mining five times. But they're not. They're supporting the farmers, that food and fibre um, that is a huge export for Australia, even if people don't realise. I'm, I'm glad I'm glad that people are starting to pay attention, uh, for, I suppose, for their own self-interest and for the environment, and that that's flowing into pressure on politicians to pay attention to the uh, negative effects of the of of the you know this these massive rollouts. I don't I still don't think people understand the entire scope of what's what's uh, necessary in you know in the uh, in the politicians and the and the modelers' minds. I mean it's it's quite frightening when you add hydrogen into into the mix. It's going to five times the amount of everything, uh, which which really bothers me quite a lot, and it should bother everybody. Um, what I suppose the other thing that bothers me is that a lot of these projects will be kicked off and forced through. So you might have seen on Twitter, I say every now and then, uh, <laughs> when I get uh, when I get frustrated at people not really uh, aware of the size and the scope of this, I say that the, the targets are so large, as in the megawatt targets for renewables, so the targets are so large and the timeframes are so short that nothing can get knocked back. Uh, and you've got this, I call them an activist government. Um, they're not Bowen and co., they're not really listening to the people on the ground. The only hope is that people like yourself and and the people in your regions will say to the uh, the local politicians, "Mate, you better you better get my message through, or you're out at the next one." But then by the next time, by the time there's another election, a lot of these contracts are already signed, and there's no the the only resort is going to be people chaining themselves to trees, basically old old fashioned greens activism. Okay, so Western Renewables Link was supposed to be completed in 2025. It hasn't even started because the farmers have all stood together. Um, I'm on a few of their Facebook groups. They send messages to each other when when Osnet is seen somewhere around there and they blockade the farms. I'm hoping the same will happen here, though it's seriously difficult because everyone's sowing at the moment. Mm. There aren't Everyone's busy. Everyone's got a day job, right? Yeah, and then... The Labor state government put through legislation that says they don't have to listen to communities. And this is this is one of the big uh, fall downs of the the opposition government. They should be taking these concerns and raising them up and getting them in, on the national papers and say, and you know, highlighting these problems. They, the the Liberal Party in Victoria is and continues to be unelectable, and they're infighting all again. Um, as I said, it's the Nets. We're on our side, federal and, and state, and effectively no nobody else. Because I don't think anyone else understands, as you said, the scale of it. it. It's just beyond imagining how big this would have to be. And based on Germany, still not work. <laughs> we know we know it's not gonna work. It's still gonna need uh it's still gonna need gas, which is uh, another something that Mel Victoria is uh, not interested in for uh, for various reasons. 
Bruce Mountain and uh, professors Bruce Mountain and Simon Bartlett, they wrote their submission to AMO on BNI West, and they said um, that the new line, if put in, would be blocked full 30% of the time. So wind farms can't compete when solar is producing at all. So it'll just be turned off or spilled, which it currently is anyhow. Uh, nothing, you never see a wind farm running in the daytime down here. They, they eat each other's lunch, these, uh, these facilities, that's for sure. They absolutely do. Anyhow, um, the uh, professors said to keep the lights on in Melbourne, um, we would need an additional four gig of gas ongoing. And you know what? You can't you can't get that really through pipelines. Uh, pipelines are expensive and they add a lot of costs. So and um, the uh, the Net Zero Australia report from um, Melbourne University in Princeton also um, said there would be a lot more gas um, just in case because um, it's a it's a really strange report it's based on replacing our exports of coal and gas by exporting hydrogen created by these massive massive solar farms in in northern western australia and northern territory um, that hopefully no one will have to stay because if they did they wouldn't like them yeah, it's it's the I've I've been through some of those reports and I can I can vouch for what you're saying. It is uh the the scale of what they're talking about is quite ridiculous. And when you when you factor in that they're talking about making this green hydrogen, which is electrolyzers run by wind and solar, they're basically exporting our drinking water because uh, I've got to use drinking quality water to put through the electrolyzers. Now on your on your question about on, Something you said earlier um, triggered in my mind, and it, it took me a while to come up with my uh, what I wanted to mention about that. Now you mentioned that the the locals are paying attention to when Osnet uh, they're the transmission. Okay, so Osnet is Western Renewables Link, but BNI West is Transgrid. Right, so that's the New South Wales link. Yeah, yeah, because it goes up to um, Project. Connect. Energy Connect, yep, that goes into Wagga. When I was at a, a presentation in Queensland by Paul Simshauser, who's the CEO of PowerLink, who's uh, the Osnet and the Transgrid equivalent in Queensland, although it's state-owned, uh, and I, I had the chance to ask a question, and I, I asked a question very much related to our topic tonight, uh, and I asked uh, Professor Paul Simshauser, how does he expect to get all these transmission projects through when the local communities haven't yet been consulted and may well object. Uh, and he, he actually, he actually brushed me off a little bit. I was, I was surprised because I thought it was a real, uh, this is exactly like you said, uh, significant delays to projects. Um, what about, there's community engagement and stakeholder engagement, but then there's social license as well. And social license is, exactly what uh you guys uh down there are arguing for and other people in your position too they they come up with these plans and then they think they can just send out osnet or transgrid and get people to agree at that point we had the two ladies um can't think of their names now at the uh, wedderburn meeting and um they basically just said yeah well you know we're going to do it and they, well you know you haven't actually consulted with anyone 
um, and consulting on options would include more than just option five you've chosen. Well, you you're, you you said at the start of this uh, chat that you lucky enough to live in renewable zone five or or something similar. To that that sounds a little B3. bit three. Yep, B three. A little yep. bit dystopian to me. Um, I can just imagine you're a you're a you're a pin on a on a maps in some uh, office in Sydney or Canberra. I, I um killed my hard drive in my laptop, which is very sad. But I had a um. A, a picture from a submission from a guy in um, Gippsland who was pointing out whether all the renewable energy zones were. And he goes, "Isn't it fascinating that not one is with 150 within 150 kilometres of Melbourne? No one asked us if we wanted to be in a renewable energy zone. They just applied these blobs on on the map um, from Melbourne, I guess. And this this is one of my main. Well, I've got plenty of concerns, I suppose. Almost every concern is a main concern, but uh, <laughs> I'm not alone there. But what I what I see happening is this great centralisation of the bureaucracy. So you've got um, Australian Energy Market Operator, who uh, several years ago, before before the great Dr. Alan Finkel was given carte blanche to um, create this massive uh, centrally planned bureaucracies by Malcolm Turnbull, uh, AMO had a, a two yearly report on the national transmission uh, network development plan. Uh, it was not, it was not really a Bible. It was just kind of, this is capacity factors and utilization and reliability and a few things like that. And it talked about what some of the sensible plans might be, but nothing was locked in stone. But what happened with when we got this integrated system plan, the, you know, the great and storied ISP uh, we got this thing called actionable projects and you, Katrina, and your friends are smack dead underneath an, ac- an actionable project, which means uh, the centrally planned bureaucracy, the central planning bureaucracies who sit in Canberra and Sydney, uh, basically throw darts at the map and say, well, that looks like a good one. <laughs> Let's put it there. The really interesting thing about it is like it's, it's the ISP plan, but it's not a plan. It's five plans with eight options to each plan. So there's like 40 plans and someone like Simon Holmes, of course, says it's got to be step trained because that suits him. Um, And all of a sudden it's only about one plan out of 40 that happens to suit someone who invests and will make money from renewables. And and transmission companies because, remember, transition companies in Australia are mostly uh, foreign owned and they get a guaranteed return depending on how many kilometers of wires they have. What is it? Is it Brookfield or? Well, Brook, Brookfield's buying origin energy uh, and splitting off the upstream gas and LNG. So origin energy will exist, but it'll be the generator retailer. So the su- suggestion was that they shouldn't be allowed to buy origin because they owned Victoria's grid that they bought off the Chinese. Okay. Well, I have to, I have to look into that, but Victoria's grid is, is, uh, is it Osnet, SP Osnet? Like where, at where I am, it, it's PowerCore, but who, who actually runs and maintains everything. Os, Osnet, Osnet services, 227,600 square kilometres, 6 million people. Yeah, there we go. Oh, that's it. Um, sorry, I just, I just Googled it. I consulted the Oracle. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, okay, so that wouldn't be all of Victoria because six million people live in Melbourne. Yes, yes. Uh, I think this is mostly the um the, the high voltage stuff going through the uh the regions and connecting the states. So you're connected to yeah Tassie. You're connected to um New South Wales. 
and uh, South Australia. And I would like to thank Queensland, as I like to thank Victoria, for our coal plants keeping the lights on in New South Wales, South Australia and Tasmania. We are doing a brilliant job. It's it's uh it's it's one of those situations, right? Especially with Liddell just closing. Uh, I was doing a little bit of a look at the numbers the other night, um, and it's it's interesting that the uh, the prices have gone up, and no one's writing stories about how closing closing Liddell has helped the climate at all or reduced prices at all. No, and 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 in the first seven days, um, the imports rose quite dramatically um, from both um, Victoria and Queensland, um, but then we had a couple of windy days. And a wind drought, the wind drought, did you see the wind drought? There were two days last week where from Western Australia, South Australia, Victoria, Tasmania, New South Wales and Queensland, effectively no wind. It was like 4%. Come on, on, Katrina, that never, that that never (laughs) happens. But they don't believe it. It it happens and it absolutely does. Fortunately, I have a screen fix of those ones um, this time. I don't know how to win what we're told in a meeting is we need to win over the Melbourne people and if the only way we can win them over is by saying your bills are going to go up because that's what um Professor Mountain Bartlett said that the transmission costs will go up twice to three times is that the only way to win them but the thing is they've got this thing in their head from Albanese and and Bowen going this is the cheapest source and well, it's not the cheapest source once you add in firming and transmission they don't want to hear, but a few blackouts might change. That's hundred percent. That's hundred percent right. There are they're they're barking up the wrong tree if they think it's going to reduce costs. I mean, it it might have reduced costs up to a point before you need to you know spend fifty or sixty billion dollars on transmission lines. <laughs> oh dear. Um, back back to your back to your landowners and um and the meetings in the area. Uh, are, there, are there any developers coming along? Is is your transmission companies coming along and trying to explain and sell the concept or are the wind farms and solar farms coming along? Uh, what's what's your interactions in the community with those organisations? At the Sonata meeting, I was sitting next to a farmer and um, he said the guy up the road from him um, um, was looking into a wind farm and he was told um, just to hold, hold, hold a few minutes, there'd be an announcement in two weeks. But I think the two weeks is probably up now because they didn't expect the blowback that they actually got. Um, so there will always be someone who thinks it'll be good to make um, effectively free money on their farm. But the ones that are actually successful farmers, and most of our Western Victorian farmers are successful, um, don't want their farms um, cut up. No, that's right. Because every because every every transmission line is a is a right of way. Uh, and the the transmission companies they must have for you know for public safety and for liability they must have free and unfettered access to that equipment so that that has serious impacts on back to the biosecurity things yeah and as well as just trying to you know operate a you know a twenty meter mach- wide machine around around power lines it's it's going to drive you crazy uh, if if nothing else there's also obviously the risk of bushfires and things where they're going through um, sort of scrub and, and tree bush kind of land. So what we know from California is they um, they turn off their high voltage above ground power lines when they've got a bushfire, which cuts off heaps of people, obviously, at the end of the line. 
um, so that they can actually use some sort of aerial firefighting because you can't use aerial firefighting over live lines. Yes. No, it wouldn't be a good mix. You're throwing, throwing uh, tons of water on top of a transmission line. You'd probably break it and cause more fires. There are will be some deals for uh, landowners or, or people who are willing to uh, work with the developers. Um, do you know, are you privy to any of those deals or has, has anyone made any public around the area? As an example of what the power lines have been offered eight thousand a kilometer for twenty five years. New South Wales farmers have been offered ten thousand a kilometer but for twenty years, and the uh, farmers have been told that the value of their property will probably drop fifty percent from having a power line running through it, and up to about twenty percent if you can see the power lines from your property. I would I would not choose to live any we're near a high voltage power line. I know people do in Melbourne. I don't know why, um, but I would not. And um, and that reflects the values. Yeah, the land value is really interesting. The um the the compensation part doesn't seem like it makes uh if you know it might cross your property for half a kilometer. <laughs> so that that certainly drops the uh drops the return significantly. Um so there's plenty of there's gonna be a few different uh opinions in the community. Is anyone is anyone in the community outright campaigning, please bring these uh, power stations and transmission lines here because we want them or is or is it it's pretty much of a consensus that find somewhere else? I think the people who disagree um, have not been near any meetings, even on the Facebook pages, there's the odd lone voice. I doubt anyone would actually say out loud that they thought it was a good idea. So they're not anyone who thinks that is not saying it. Very disappointed, uh, particular ward of the Shire I'm in. Um, none of our councillors um, are interested at all, which I think says something um, without them saying. They're anything. not interested in coming to. They're not interested in coming to meetings, or they're not interested in the infrastructure. They're not coming to the meetings, so I'm presuming they're not interested in blocking it. Right. So they're. In, do you think they're probably in favour of, which is pretty much true to form. Um, do you you mentioned the Facebook groups and the farmers and a bit of networking? Do you talk to anybody in other regions that are similarly affected? Uh, yeah, there's the the Humlink people up in New South Wales, um, but there's also the uh, the rainforest group that's actually just trying to stop or slow the um, the wind farms in um, northern Queensland. That um, Bruce Mountain um, went up with one of them to have a look, and it goes. Why would you build them here when right on the coastline would be better? Which is like the pictures I like to use. You know, let's put the wind turbines around Port Phillip Bay and Sydney Harbour. Get to the sea breezes, and it'll be perfect. Close. Let's let's stick them all through the Great Barrier Reef. Close to close to consumers. It'd be wonderful. I'm not, I'm sure plenty of people have pointed out to Zali Stegall that um they should have she should she should be campaigning for uh, wind turbines on Manly Beach. There was actually a GoFundMe. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, the, the the hypocrisy in this lot are pretty incredible. The uh, the teals, the greens, the greens. At least they wear their colours on their sleeves. Those those no, communists. They, they, they do. <laughs> I don't have much. I don't have many kind like, words well, to say. Well, we just have them. to do it, and we don't care. I'll tell you who. I'll tell you who. I think you'd. I'll tell you which you'd get some sympathy from. Um, Christine Milne, the the former leader of the Greens, is not definitely not in favour of. Renewables development in Tasmania, or Bob Brown. And they don't want it for for, for, the, for all the reasons that you've talked about as well. Um, Katrina, any any last words before we run out of time? 
How, how bad can it get, do you think? The bad can it get is, is, is them compulsorily acquiring the land and forcing it through. That would be the worst, worst case scenario. Um, and I think we're all very concerned about that. Um, but I'm hoping all the farmers stand together all the way from Bolgana through to uh, Kerrang and support each other in there are existing easements that could be used, but if it doesn't need to be built at all, which is what the professors say and what Net Zero Australia says, why do it? I, I tend to agree. And I would uh, love to see the ABC come out and uh, interview a few people in your area. ABC has actually been more supportive than anyone imagined they would be. It's, it's weirdly surprising. It is. It is. Katrina, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Not a problem. Thanks, Ben. See ya. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a week. In the meantime, if you like the podcast, hit the like button, subscribe, tell your friends.